Listen to God's word. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the bulls of the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and I am one of the pastors here, and I am uh, looking forward to looking at this passage with you. But before I do, would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, we are reminded um, that the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that you have spoken. These words are sacred. These words uh, deserve to be heard. And so, Lord, as, as your people, we pray that you would help us to be open, that you would help us to yield uh, to what you are saying, uh, to be changed that you would help me to be able to relay what you are saying clearly, that together, more and more, we would be the beautiful church that you have created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we are now in week two of what I've called project, uh, the Isaiah Project. We are, for an extended period of time, looking, working through this, this Mount Everest of books in the Bible that has so much to it. And this morning I want to consider with you what I think is a, is a kind of confusion that the church is experiencing. It is a mistake. I'm not talking just about our church, but kind of at least nationwide or beyond that. A mistake that I think is consistently made in people's thinking that is so common that people, I think, are not even aware of it. And, and so everywhere that we are probably affected by it more than we know. And that mistake is that we generally separate the Christian understanding of faith from the Christian understanding of repentance. If, if you're wondering, because I know repentance has a lot of different meanings to different people, repentance, as I think the scripture defines, it just simply means turning. It is a turning from and a turning to. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about repentance. And, and what I want to suggest to you is that we have taken these two ideas of faith and repentance and feel about them very differently, and we shouldn't. So what do I mean by that? Well, think about the way that faith has, the, the presence that faith has, the idea of faith in our thinking. Uh, it doesn't even matter whether you are someone who's grown up in the church or you're new to Christianity. Faith is something you've probably heard quite a bit about. When we talk about someone who's religious, we might call them a person of faith. And if we feel like they're devout, we call them a person of deep faith, right? Someone who comes to Christianity will say maybe comes to faith or maybe they've taken a leap of faith. I mean, it's become such a common thing that it's just kind of part of our, our even secular way of speaking. You've got to have faith. That's, that's important. Now, try taking the word faith out and putting the word repentance in and see if it works. So that person's a person of repentance or a person of deep repentance. Feels a little different, doesn't it? That person came to repentance. You got to have repentance. The words feel different, don't they? There's a different vibe to it. Faith kind of feels positive and, and optimistic and, and nice. Whereas repentance, if we're honest, kind of has a negative, kind of stuffy, kind of confining sense. It feels to many of us, I think, whether we're you know, clear about it or not, it has the connotations of something that's kind of from religion from 40 years ago, kind of dusty and old, where faith feels kind of contemporary and vibrant. And yet, when you look at Scripture, you do not see that distinction. In fact, the two words go so closely together that sometimes it's almost that they're substituted. They are different concepts, but they are integral to each other. So here's for me one of the clearest examples of this. When, when you are introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, the very first words that Mark says that Jesus says are meant to tell us this is the message that Jesus proclaims. This is his gospel that he wants everyone to know. And what is it? He says, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. His message that he proclaims is a message of repentance. 
when we get to the very end of the gospel, in the end of Luke, where Jesus is explaining things to these very bewildered Christians after he's risen from the dead, and he says, the scriptures said that the Christ must suffer and after three days rise again and repentance for the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed amongst the nations. Do you hear that? When Jesus is summarizing the message the church proclaims throughout the world, he says it's about repentance. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't know if that strikes you as odd. Maybe you're thinking, but wait a second, isn't the whole point of kind of the Protestant Reformation, what makes us, you know, like kind of almost defines us that we believe that salvation is by faith alone. And yes, when we are saved, we are saved by our faith in Christ. But what the Reformers will say again and again is while we're saved by faith alone, that faith is never alone. That faith always comes side by side together with repentance. So when we talk about the Reformation, you know, Martin Luther, the 95 Theses is the first thing that kind of began the Reformation. Do you know what the very first thesis was that he nailed on the Wittenberg door? This is what Luther says. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. That's how the Protestant Reformation began, with a description of repentance. If you were to study another reformer, John Calvin's Institutes, he spends an entire chapter just describing how closely faith and repentance are connected. He, you know, he says, you can't repent without faith. We need to believe to be able to repent faithfully, but you cannot have faith without repentance. They are absolutely integral to each other. They are so tied to each other. What, what scripture says and the reformers understood is that if we are thinking of faith, our minds should immediately go to repentance. And if we don't, then we don't really understand faith at all. That, that's, that's what Jesus is saying when he's saying the message is repent for the forgiveness of sins. Which means we might have a problem. Because if we are talking a lot about the Christian faith and our faith just is completely disconnected from repentance, maybe we are missing something really important. And we should even think about for ourselves, to what extent do we think of faith in a way that doesn't demand change? Because Christian faith involves a turning we cannot have true faith without true repentance. I bring that up because repentance is really at the heart of what not only this chapter is about, but it really is in some ways the purpose of the book of Isaiah. So maybe you've experienced this. Sometimes if you're reading a book, like it's a non-fishing book, maybe it's like a self-help book or something like that, the very first chapter, the introduction, kind of offers um, an explanation of how to use this book. So I say, you know, this is why I wrote this book. This is what you're supposed to do with it. Let me just kind of give you a few words to begin. Well, that's kind of how chapter one of Isaiah is for us. Chapter one of Isaiah is meant to say, all right, people, I'm writing this to you, and let me tell you why I am writing this. This is the effect I am seeking to bring about. I am seeking your repentance. 
We see that if we get to the very heart of our passage, which really is in verses 15, uh, 16 through 18. This is at the very core of what our passage is about. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the Father. Let's plead the widow's cause. And here's the very heart. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's a call to repentance. This first chapter, which addresses the people, which orients us to what the entire book is about, is a chapter that is calling people to repentance. And let me tell you, that is the intended purpose of this whole vision. This vision that we said that Isaiah is giving us, that is God's vision for us meant to change our mindset. God is giving it to us so that we can repent so that we can continue to repent, so that we can be changed. Remember, I said Isaiah has these two pictures of the church. There is kind of the church the way it is in its ugliness and sinfulness, and there's the church the way that God is going to make it in its beauty that will bring all the nations to it. And here we see how it's going to change through repentance. If we, as we are studying this this book together, if we are truly listening to it, we will be repenting. And if we aren't, that means we're doing it wrong. So this chapter, as it kind of lays it out, gives us an understanding of what this repentance looks like. I've said that repentance is a turning from and a turning to. And and we see that pattern here. The first half is more about the turning from. The second half is more about the turning to. And really, the way to summarize this chapter is that he is calling... God's people. He is calling Judah in that time, but also us right now, to leave our lie, our falsehood, and to go to God. To, to leave the lie and to go to God. So we be- began by first looking at what that first part of, of leaving the lie. And here's the lie that God is calling his people to turn from. The lie is, I'm just fine. That's, that's what Israel's lie is, that they are doing okay when really clearly they aren't. Look at how, how God's people are described in verse 6. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. This is a problem, right? But notice that they don't do anything about it. There's bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. You are bleeding and you are not treating your wounds, God is saying. Uh, We're supposed to imagine with this image. Imagine that you say one time you're walking down the street and you see someone on the sidewalk and they have two black eyes, and they have a bloody nose, and there are blood stains all over their clothing, and every inch of skin that you can see is bruised, and they can't even get up, and, and you decide in that moment, you remember this, the Good Samaritan story, so you, you come to them and talk to them and says, hey, can I help you? Can I get you to the hospital? And they say, why? I'm fine. That's, 
That's what God is saying is true of Israel. They are battered, they are bruised, they are destroyed, and they're saying, we don't need any help. I remember there's a friend of mine who, um, one of the challenges that he faced, and I don't think he ever realized it, is that the way that he would respond to his anxiety was by exerting control. Usually he did this in a very winsome way. He was very charismatic. He knew kind of how to read the room and kind of get people to kind of like him or whatever the situation. But there was one time when his family went through something that was out of control. And, and when he tried to respond to it, he tried to exert control, exert control over his family using manipulation and, and anger, trying to get everything to hold together. But of course, that very response of manipulation and anger started pushing people away. He alienated his wife from him. He alienated his children from himself. And as friends were saying, look, this is not going well, and tried to confront him, then that same desire to kind of just be in the control pushed his friends away until he was all alone. And what I wanted him to see, if only he could, is look, what you are doing is just making things worse and worse and worse. Could you not just consider changing? And, and that's... That's what's going on with Israel. They are doing something that's making things worse and worse. And God is saying, why? Do you notice how it begins? Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The, 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 the bruisedness, what he's talking about, is described in, in subsequent verses. Verse 7, your, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Look, people of Judah, you are in ruins. Armies are marching all over, and you aren't yet going, maybe this is something that we've done wrong. Maybe we need to ask for help. But it is. It is something that they've done wrong. That's what God says very clearly, that, that, that whether they realize it or not, that this is directly related to their abandonment of God. That it's because they've kind of turned from God that God has kind of removed his protection and they're getting absolutely pulverized. And, and so he tries to help them understand, you need to realize that, that you're not okay, that we are not okay. And so he says something really shocking in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's speaking to Judah, but he's calling them Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. If, if you know your Bible history at all, you'll know in Genesis that Sodom and Gomorrah was this, these two cities that were so utterly filled with sin that they became obliterated by God. And now God's saying, that's you. Which would have been absolutely shocking to the people of Judah because they were the good guys. Like if we look from 10 onward through about 15, we'll see that to kind of use contemporary language, they went to church all the time. They offered really generous sacrifices they had special holy days that they set apart for worship of God. They, they prayed regularly, and God is saying, I hate all of it. When, when you're coming to church, I feel like you're trampling my courts. I, I hate your sacrifices. I hate these holy days. I am shutting my eyes when you're lifting up your hands in prayer. Why? Because it's just a show. Because it's only skin deep, because even as you're doing this, you are so filled with hypocrisy that you are combining it with sin. So, 
So we see him saying that, where it says in verse uh, 13, at the end of 13, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. You're coming to church and you're maintaining your sinful lifestyle and they can't go together. Or verse 15, or sorry, verse 14, I will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers. I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Even as you're praying, they're still stained by the injustice that you are allowing, by the vulnerable that are being mistreated, by the violence that is taking place. Do you not see? See, Israel was deceived. They, they, they believed that as long as they were religious, as long as they were maintaining their traditions and, and going through the religious rituals, as long as they believed, then they were okay with God. And God is saying, no, we are definitely not okay because I don't want your empty rituals. I don't want just an empty faith. I want your hearts. I don't want to just be the symbol. I want to be your God. He's saying, you think you are okay. You think that this is okay, that, that there's no problem, and we have a problem. And what you need to understand, my people, is that you're not okay. That our relationship is not okay. It's not just enough to have this kind of faith. You need to repent. Do you see that? So I, I can't help wondering, because I, I'm assuming that God's people then are not the only ones who make mistakes like this, and God's people now probably continue to make mistakes like this. And so the question I just really want us to think for a moment is, is do we have a similar danger where we are holding on to a lie and deceiving ourselves. And one of the reasons I ask this is because I believe that one of the, one of the, the core truths of suburbs is that you and I are fine. Like, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great. And we say that because, of course, we want to look fine to other people. But you know what? I actually think that we try to believe it ourselves. That, yeah, I'm fine. My life is fine. I'm holding things together just fine when inwardly we are slowly dying. Because for us to acknowledge that we're not okay is terrifying. Because what might that mean? I, I wonder also if, if there are some of us even here who have gotten so in their minds that, that following God is just about church. It's just about making sure we're generous with our offerings. It's just about prayer. And yet our hearts are far removed from God. What God says to us this morning in these verses is let go of this lie. There is a very freeing statement that every follower of Christ needs to say in one way or another. And it's just four words. I am not okay. I am not okay. We are not okay. Our sin is far more of a big deal than we realize. Our self-destructiveness is far more of a big deal than we realize. We are not okay. And that's where repentance begins, by letting go of the lie and saying, I am not okay. 
So that's the turning from. But then secondly, there is a turning to. We turn from by letting go of the lie, and we turn to by going to God. Because at the very heart of Israel's problem, as we've already alluded to, is a relationship problem with God. Did you see how in verse 4, it's repeated three times that we don't miss it. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. There is a relational distance between God's people and God. They are distant. Remember one time when I was talking with someone, uh, they found out that I was a pastor, and so sometimes when people find out I'm a pastor, they feel like they should start suddenly talking about personal things. Uh, most of the time that's not the case, but occasionally that's how it works. And, and he just kind of said, you know what? Me and the man upstairs, we're just not very tight. And I suspect actually that that is a pretty common sentiment. Maybe people wouldn't use that language, but there is a feeling that people have of distance. And I actually think it goes deeper. I think our default is to avoid God. And, and when we avoid God by, by not praying regularly, by, by not thinking that much about God involved in our lives, by, by not trying to listen to him, that, we, we avoid him for the same reason we avoid anyone else, and that's fear. Think about it. Say, say you're walking into a room with lots of people and suddenly you notice someone and you suddenly realize, I don't want to talk to that person. Have you ever had that feeling before? Why? Why do you at that moment not want to talk to that person? My guess is it's because you are afraid of what that conversation might feel like. Maybe that person is just really unpleasant. Or maybe you have done something where you feel like you've let that person down and you don't want to have to deal with it. Maybe you're experiencing some sort of conflict, but you avoid because of fear. How many marriages have gone distant because people just are so tired of arguing and they're afraid of having to argue again so they just don't talk to their spouse at all? Or how many times do we see children become alienated from parents because children are ashamed? It's fear. And we see Israel, God's people, with the very same tendency. They are avoiding God. And here's the part of the passage that I find absolutely stunning. Here's the part of the passage, if you don't see anything else, I want you to see this because it's miraculous. Do you see how God responds to this shunning of him? Remember, this is the God of the universe who has everything. This is the God who is holy, who has always been and always will be. He would have every right to say, all right, Israel, you're leaving me. You don't realize what a privilege it is to have a relationship with me. I'm fine. I'm done with you. It's not even like he says, Israel, if you want to come back, you're going to have to prove yourself for a while. No, what does God do? Do you notice the heart of God in these verses? He, he is grieving Ah, sinful nation, he says. Why? Why will you be struck down? There is a grief and a longing, and it kind of focuses itself in a pleading. Come, verse 18 says. Come now. It could just as easily be translated, please, come. The God of the universe wants them even though they've been this way, he wants us. And he says, 
Come. Come now, let's, let's reason together. In other words, let's, I, I want to bring you back to your senses. And, and to disarm their fear, notice what he says when he invites them. He's not, he's not expecting them to have everything dealt with. He says, if you come, I know right now your sins are like scarlet. Because remember, their hands are covered with blood. But if you come to me, they will be like fresh fallen snow where no one has stepped in. They will be, you will be pure white. Your sins will be forgiven and you will be pure in my sight. And again, when he's saying come, he's not saying get your life together, figure things out, and then come to me. No, he says the very opposite. He says, come to me and I will help you get things together. If we continue to look at the last verses, what we would see is God is saying, I know you can't, my people, you can't make yourself righteous, so I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to come, I'm going to bring judges, I'm going to make things beautiful again. And it says, those who repent, he will redeem with righteousness. In other words, those who come to me, I will work in and through them to make them beautiful. But you just need to come. I'm lingering here because I think it's so important for us to see the heart of our God. Yes, God takes sin seriously, and he will never pretend it's anything but what it is. And yes, God disciplines because he treats sin seriously. But do you see, even as there is discipline, even as there is suffering, there is a loving, longing patience in God inviting these people who have turned their backs on him to come and I will make everything right. And that is how God speaks to you and to me. He says, don't avoid me. You don't need to be afraid of coming. I am the God who loves you. Come. What what does it mean if we're saying to leave our lie and to turn to God, to come to God? What does that even mean? Well, even as he makes this invitation in verse 18, he immediately explains what he means by coming in 19 and 20. See if you notice the contrast. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Verse 20, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. You see that contrast, willing and obedient, could, could easily be translated if you are receptive and hearing. And refuse and rebel obviously has this idea of stubbornness, of resistance. It is the contrast between being open to God and being closed to him. In other words, what God is saying is, when, he's saying, when I'm telling you to come to me, I am saying you need to let me come into you. To come to God is to, to let God in. Have you ever, um, I'm going to assume you probably have, been in a situation where you're feeling really defensive? Maybe you know you've done something wrong and the other person is speaking about it and you know they're right, but, but when you are hearing them speak, are you listening? Like, how well are you listening? At least for me, I'm not oftentimes listening. When I'm feeling defensive, the only thing I'm trying to hear is what I can argue against. Because I know that if I actually truly open myself up and listen, 
I'm going to actually have to acknowledge that they're right. And I really don't want to do that. And God is saying, you need to open yourself up. You need to allow my words to come in and and even come to the, the deepest, most sensitive, most vulnerable part of who you are and reshape you. Another way of putting this is God is calling us to yield. To to yield to his instructions through obedience, even though these instructions might be threatening to us. To yield as he speaks promises to us, to yield to those promises in trust, even though it might be hard for us to understand how they will be fulfilled to yield to his declaration of love by responding with gratitude and love in return, even though we cannot understand why God would love us. God says, come to me and let me in. You know, from the New Testament perspective, I think we see this kind of take on a kind of a whole new focus when we, what we real, realize what, what God is saying here even now is you have to let Jesus in. I mean, I, I think of, of, of Revelation 3. So Jesus in that moment is actually speaking to a church, and boy, does it seem like that church is almost exactly like the people God is speaking to in Isaiah. Because here's what he says. He says, those that I love, I discipline. Therefore, be earnest and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door and I am knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens up the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I can't think of a better summary of what is going on in in this chapter. God is saying, I love you, and because I love you, I am disciplining you because you need to come to an end of this. And I'm doing this so that you can repent. And he says that even to us. If you are being brought down, if you feel like you are exhausted, maybe it's because God is trying to get your attention. And what Jesus is saying to you right now is I am standing at the door and knocking. Just let me in and I will eat with you and you will be changed. This is what our passage is about. It is a call to forgiveness, to to repentance. It's, It's a call to let go of this lie, I'm okay, just to let go of that, to turn from that, and and to go to God as he says, come to me, and to allow Jesus in. And this is not just, like, it might sound like what I'm talking about is this one-time conversion of becoming, from going from a non-Christian to being a Christian, and yes, if you would not identify yourself as someone who follows Christ yet, this is what it means to become a Christian. It means recognizing you can't do it, that you are sinful, that you need help, and it means going to Christ and allowing him to be your king. That is what it means to become a Christian. But let me say that's what it means for once we are Christians, what it looks like every day. Luther was right. When Jesus says repent, he's calling us to a lifelong repentance of daily acknowledging before God, I cannot do this, I'm not okay. 
and of daily choosing to say, Lord Jesus, you are my king. Continue to show me and shape me. I yield myself to you. That's what this chapter is calling us to. So as I was um, doing, studying this passage, I came across uh, one pastor speaking about it, and, and I was struck by something he said. He was saying that, you know, right now we are at a time where it's easy to despair. We look around and we see a world that is broken and that is falling apart, and we wish it would change. And he says, here's the thing, we're looking in the wrong place. He says, the reason, this is the quote, the reason that we see so little repentance in the world is that the world sees so little repentance in the church. The reason we see so little repentance in the world is that the world sees so little repentance in the church. I think he's right. And my prayer is that we as a church would be different. I, honestly, I believe we are. I feel like I see so many people humbled and being changed and repentant, and my prayer is that God would continue to do that work, that we would be a people who stop thinking that we've got this all together and who just says we are not okay, and that we would be a people who allow Jesus to do his work in us because that is how we become beautiful. Because that is how the world can see the glory of God. Because that is how the world will be changed. So as we close our time together, I want to invite us to respond to God's word by doing exactly that. As I said, repentance is not a one-time thing. It is something we do again and again. So I invite you. God is lovingly saying, come to me. And so in this moment, I invite you before God to acknowledge your sin, to say, I am not okay, and to turn to him in repentance. And then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time. Would you please join with me in silent prayer?